This is episode 20 with Manny Medina. You love it. You are great at it. The world needs it. You are paid for it. In this program, we go deep to get answers to essential questions and learn how to develop key skills to live a life that moves you. This is the Beyond the Surface podcast. My guest, Manny Medina, is the CEO of Outreach.io a sales automation firm that has grown from six employees to 230 in its first three years. Born in Ecuador, Manny moved to the U.S. for college, which led him to work at two of the most prominent tech giants, Amazon and Microsoft, before becoming a CEO. Manny has been featured on CNBC, Huffington Post, Entrepreneur.com, among some other media outlets. In this episode, I ask Manny about his journey from employee to entrepreneur, how he got started using automation to increase his first startup sales productivity, and the challenges and lessons learned as a CEO of a fast-growing company. Manny, thank you for being here with me today. I really appreciate it. No, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start by going to learning more about your beginnings. Could you just kind of rewind and maybe share a little bit about what was your childhood like growing up in Ecuador so i uh i'm the i'm the son of um my of a of a russian immigrant to ecuador uh and and uh of uh, of my father who um who was uh, both of them are engineers so i was always being surrounded by by engineering and i uh, both my parents taught at at university, so I was surrounded by students of engineering and so forth. So I always wanted to be an engineer. Oh wow! And growing up, um, I had this this crisis of like, what kind of engineering do I want to do? Because I had all this interest. So I wanted to do electrical and mechanical and computers. Computers were, were pretty new, and I realized that if I studied computers, I could dip my hands in a little bit of all, of everything because computers were starting to be used pretty much on anything that and all the other engineering. Mm -hmm. Capacity. So I, f I figured engineering, computer engineering was going to be my, ha would have the highest option value and I didn't have to make a decision. So I decided to go and, and do that, right? But as I, as I got into it, I realized that A, um, it, yes, it, it, gave, it gave me a lot of optionality in terms of the kind of jobs that I could have after being a, a, a graduate. But B, that Ecuador was a fairly limiting place to be a computer engineer or a mm -hmm. computer scientist. Meaning the the majority of jobs, if not a hundred percent of the jobs that I could get, were supporting somebody else's software. Was either taking <clears throat> SAP, Oracle, or Microsoft, you know, finished products and mm -hmm. sort of fit it to a particular to a particular um, industry. Mm -hmm. So I will always be working on somebody else's product as opposed to building my own. Mm. And that, and even though you you get paid very well to do that kind of work, and and you and you do it either for a company you do it for a consulting company but it's not creative mm. you're always constrained within within the framework you're in you're never going to write your own code it's never going to be your product mm -hmm. and that's when i realized that i had to i had to move somewhere else i have to move to a place where software was eating the world if you would yeah and mid mid college i started college in ecuador in the uh, Politecnica. Mm -hmm. Mid-college, I, I made a switch. I applied to a few universities, and I took the one that took the majority of my credits as a transfer. Mm -hmm. So I transferred to the U.S. and then finished up school and immediately went to work for an aerospace company called Allied Signal. Wow. And that was that was super fun because that, that you get to apply everything that you learn into making a plane work. So I was working on the autopilot of the C-130. Oh, wow. Which is, um, which is a, a, you know, the, larger, the larger, largest uh, aircraft uh, for for caring for transporting stuff, mm -hmm. um, as in as in if you see a C one thirty showing up in your country, you know war has begun, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's usually transporting tanks and cars and a bunch of other stuff. So it's I was working on on re on bringing the C one thirty to the modern times, and it was it was a wonderful learning experience mm -hmm. um, of working on such a large complex project with a lot of moving parts, you know, where failure was not an option. Meaning you know the autopilot cannot fail. Mm -hmm. So you have to build software around, you know, a lot of contingencies. So that was that was super fun. But from my from my childhood, what I can say is that uh, I, I I didn't grow up um, wealthy, mm -hmm. which means unlike most entrepreneurs, that their story begins. Oh, I had a Commodore or an Atari at the age of eleven, twelve, eight, whatever, mm -hmm. and that changed my life. I had none of that. 
computers were very expensive in Ecuador. It was a huge tax on computers. Yeah. So I couldn't, I, I didn't have a computer until I was in college. Wow. So for me, it was just the, the dream of changing the way things are done via mm -hmm. engineering was always alluring. Wow. Um, and that's how I ended up where I am. Now, uh, at what point did you uh, decided to pursue a degree, on, a business school degree through Harvard? I was in, um, it was after I, I had taken a job uh, at, at a, a Citigroup coming mm -hmm. out of my computer science master's degree at University of Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And although I was loving the hustle and bustle of Wall Street, I was working, I actually ended up working on the on a project that would securitize loans, which would then ended up being part of the problem of the of the of the financial collapse. But I was working on 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 that on sort of operationalizing that instrument. And I realized that whatever I was working on had a curve of interest, meaning I work on it, it was interesting until it wasn't, and then it was a grind. Mm -hmm. And then you go find something else and then you work on it for a bit and then it was a grind again and then you sort of, you have this cycle. And yeah. I was trying to figure out, so is this cycle normal or is, or is this cycle meaning that I'm in the wrong profession? Mm. And and uh, I decided that it was the latter, that I was in the wrong profession. So if I'm in the wrong profession, what is the right profession? So I decided to to quit and apply to, to business school. Mm -hmm. um, and because at the time, uh, my my wife had relationships. You know, she's from New England. Mm -hmm. I only applied to two schools: to MIT and Harvard. Oh wow! And I ended up ended up going to Harvard because I already had a pretty technical degree, and I figured that MIT was just going to pigeonhole me into like the technical guy at whatever job I was going to do. So I ended mm -hmm. up going to Harvard to go figure out what I was going to do next. So these these basically these two skill sets merged into. Would you ended up doing as a CEO? Because I mean, you're still benefiting from doing both of these things. I think uh, so. Yes, the answer is yes, and and I think one of the one of the most important attributes of a CEO of a of a software company uh -huh. is that you have to understand everything. And when I say that, it's not it's not that you're a micromanager, mm -hmm. but you ha the the points of leverage in your company and the things that are make or break or breakthroughs of the company are going to happen in different departments mm -hmm. at different times. And you have to have a solid grasp of all. Mm -hmm. um, for us, it was a particular product feature that we launched ahead of everybody else called sequences mm -hmm. that allow us to map an entire workflow into mm -hmm. a communication workflow that then we could automate. We were first in the market to do that. Mm -hmm. And by doing so, it opened the market up for 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 us to sort of mop it up right there there was no end to the need mm -hmm. but then after that happens then you have to optimize for go to market because mm -hmm. now you have demand coming in from everywhere and you have to figure out what demand are you going to take in are you going to take in are you going to become a hotspot if you would mm -hmm. of and serve very small companies or are you going to become a marketo or a, or a eloqua that is serving the top end of the market and you have to make a choice mm -hmm. and then once you make a choice the company that you build based on that is completely different than the other company that you're going to build and once you made that choice then you have to get good at other things right so in our case we decided to go to the upper top part of the market and build a more sophisticated product and invest in security and 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 administration and management and so on within the feature, which means that now we have to figure out how to get a higher dollar value per seat mm -hmm. and that and, and, how, and how you sell it. So that made me get really good at how do you train our reps to sell that, that particular value? How do you package a product that has a particular value? How do you, you know, what is your sell cycle when you go up market, et cetera? And those are all skills that I had to almost pick up on the job because we didn't have it before. But you have to be open to do exactly that. You can jump from a technical problem to a sales problem to a support problem to a sales problem to a marketing problem and, and be able to do it with confidence and add value. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think my education has helped me to do uniquely mm -hmm. in this particular case. Uh, another part of your journey that I found interesting is when you share that at Amazon. Yes. A, you noticed that it was very difficult for you to keep up with the conversations with executives because they were really fast at math That's mentally. Right. Mm -hmm. And you bought a speed math book to keep up with them. Uh, do you do you remember the name of that book? I, I, I do, but I'm going to have to look it up. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
I, I'll, I'll look it up and, and, and send it to you. But yeah, I, I, uh, I, it was remarkable how nobody used a calculator. Yes. And when I walked into a meeting, um, the first thing the product managers would do or the finance folks would do or anybody in the room uh -huh. would do is go through the spreadsheet, go through the presentation really quick, go through the spreadsheet and make sure that the numbers sort of made sense in their head. And the, the name of the book was called How to Calculate Quickly. How to Calculate Quickly. Yeah. And, put that in the show notes. Um, and it's not an easy book. It's just a ton of exercises. And the thing yeah. about speed math that very few people know is that you get good accounting. Hmm. So all you're doing is counting. Yeah. You get good accounting. I mean, you count fast and then you start counting in sets of twos and threes and fours and sevens. Eventually you count in sets of 121s and in sets of, you know, 111s. And all that is fast in your head. But the most important thing that I learned is that for you to be able to make sense of something, you need something called number sense which is a sense of proportion of what you're talking about. And then match that against well, your hypothesis of the business. And that's what that experience really told me, is that it's not so much that you can do fairly complex calculations in your head, but it's the fact that you had a sense of the number and the proportion of that number to the business and the proportion of the number to the business value you're trying to impact. Yeah. And that was what everybody was extraordinarily good at. For instance, at, at Amazon, everybody talks about contribution margin, at least on the retail side of the business. And this is why Amazon is such a, such a disruptor because they come in in businesses that have already low margins and they go and kick ass wow. in, in an area in which people will be like, no, there's no, there's no way any, any new player is going to get in here because the margins are already very small and Amazon shows up mm -hmm. and makes the margins even smaller and they continue to grow. Mm -hmm. If you look at the, one of the reasons they continue to grow so fast on the, uh, as a cloud infrastructure player is because they know the business of low margins well. And hmm. they can play it all day long. Microsoft doesn't know that business that well. Google doesn't know that business that well. And all the players are, are new to low margins. Mm -hmm. So, um, But also I think being able to uh, have those numbers in mind and being able to calculate that really fast uh, facilitates the problem solving of whatever you're talking about. That's exactly right. It allows you to, again, get quickly to a, a to a zip code as to what problem, the size of the problem and then whether the number matters or not. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about small margins, the number matters quite a bit. Mm -hmm. When you're not talking about small, when you're talking about big margins, then the number doesn't matter as much and you have to figure out all the things that are important, such as expansion of your you know, total addressable market or new product launches that are going to make an mm -hmm. impact into your, into your P&L, et cetera. Now, let's, let's move now to your time in Microsoft. You spent there seven years, moved really quick through the corporate ladder as a director of business partnerships in Latin America and Canada. Um, so you were doing really well. You're moving really fast, going from Amazon to Microsoft. It seems like you're in the fast lane. Uh, what, what was the turning point? What event or circumstance that made you decide to make the jump into trying to start your own business? So I'm glad you asked a question as a starting your own business because a lot of people ask me, what was the turning point when you start outreach? And I didn't quit to start something. I quit. Because <laughs> I, I was... Because I was on my third or fourth launch of Windows Phone. Mm -hmm. And I love the intensity by which Microsoft addressed the, the phone market. They really wanted to win. They had a winning strategy, mm -hmm. but they had a losing execution. Mm. And they had a losing execution in a place in which they had two competitors that were killing it they were not just doing well they were killing it like uh the iphone was the first one to release so, such a compelling um you know application store mm -hmm. that and and phones were flying phones were flying off the shell and then android came out and then sort of every manufacturer and their mother had an a, you know a, a handful of android uh SKUs. And, and amazon was struggling to get htc to create a phone and, and samsung to create a phone and and, and LG to create a phone. And then we were going to the carriers and sort of doing all these partnerships and, and commercial agreements to try to get the phone off the shelf. And it was just hard. And you know, after, after the third one, I'm, you, know, it's, it's, you know, it's just as hard as the first two, probably even harder. And I'm like, is this the best use of my time? Like, I feel like I was at the point of, of where I knew the most and I can contribute the most to any organization. And I wasn't contributing as much to this particular problem set. And I couldn't figure out, and I had already worked at Xbox, which in my mind is one of the most exciting areas to work in if you're at Microsoft. So I already tick all the boxes in terms of like, am I working on, the, on, a, on a growth area? Am I working on a challenging problem? Am I mm -hmm. working on a problem that really interests me? And I wasn't being satisfied. So at that point I realized 
I need to I need to stop doing this and really figure out a way where I can apply all my all all that I have, not a little bit of what I have, not only my right brain, not only my thinking brain, but my creative and my energy and like everything. Mm-hmm. And that's that's when I realized I need to start my own company. I don't mm-hmm. even know doing what, but I need to really start doing my own company. And that's around the time when I started. There used to be a bar here in Seattle in Capitol Hill at the Battery. It was called the Battery, um, where a bunch of um, startups used to hang out, or like you know small companies or. F- f- you, people with ideas looking for founders or, or co- technical co-founders and developers looking for good ideas. It was a bit of an underground club. And in that, in that time and in that context is where I met Andrew Kinzer and we started riffing on ideas. We both had the same interest of like, let's quit, let's find something that we can do together. Mm-hmm. And we figured out something really early that I think was kind of important, that the idea is important, but it's more important the team you build it with. Because what ended up happening is that we ended up creating this team of four. So Andrew, Wes, Gordon, and I are the founders mm-hmm. of, of Outreach. But we were working on a, on a different idea before that did not go well. Mm-hmm. And was that the recruiting software? That was a recruiting software. So mm-hmm. it was gr- called Group Talent. Mm-hmm. And by, by the, what we got out of working on Group Talent is that, is that we exited Group Talent with a unified team of four very smart individuals who are very strong and, and talented in different areas that are all complementary to each other. All we needed was a good problem set. And that is not hard to find. Hmm. So the fact you that we were- the team before the- That's pro- exactly right. The fact that we were working on the wrong problem set actually developed our grit because we all hit bottom in our personal lives. Well, we all did. Like in, 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 in not only economically and financially, meaning we all lost a ton of money. We were living on a, on a you know, shoestring salary, making all sorts of sacrifices. But we work on a problem that didn't seem to get any better the more technology we throw at it. You know, we built better software and the business wasn't growing. We built even better software and the business wasn't growing. And it was when we realized when we built software that would allow us to sell faster and the business started growing that we realized that we were barking up the wrong tree and we should really build software that solved this particular problem, which was sales. And we did it. So to me, my, from my own experience, I only have, you know, the life that I live, so I can only tell you one story, mm-hmm. is, that, is that it's almost as important or particularly more important to find the right team mm-hmm. and then to find the problem for the, right, for the team that you have. Interesting. My, um, one of our investors um, and, you know, a very dear friend of mine and board member, uh, Karan Mahandra from Trinity, has a whole piece written, written about uh, founder, founder market fit as opposed to product market fit. And he looks for that for hmm. founder market fit in that, in that the founder fits the market that they're invested in because the product will always be off. doesn't matter how f- comfortable you feel about your product market fit. On the other side of that product market fit, there is a customer that, that will always be satisfied to a point. And the, your, your product will always be ill-fitting. So you'll always be working on product market fit. There is no end to that. But as long as the founder is the right fit for the market, it will be a big company. Hmm. Now, talking about you as a as a founder, was there anything that you could point back when you were at Amazon and Microsoft that really helped you become that type of founder? Um, I think a lot of my experience that drives me right now comes from bosses, not the actual job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let me take that back. A lot of what I learned at Amazon is it's is is um, sort of what drives me today in terms of thinking of you know strategy. But what I learned a lot in my life that I apply as a as a boss right now comes from my my previous managers. Mm-hmm. So at, at Amazon, I um, I learned the the ability to sort of think business and numbers very fast, and very quick, and mm-hmm. sort of make sure you instrument everything. Because when you play again, when you play with low, low margins, every little bit counts. Mm-hmm. And an Amazon being a consumer company, the transa- transaction speed and time to load up a website, et cetera, all that was important to the point that I was part of the, I was at Microsoft, sorry, I was at Amazon in, during the time in which it was the genesis of Amazon Web Services when Bezos asked a question to you know, our, you know, his, his weekly his weekly, um, his weekly manager's review as to what would happen. Are we, are we, the, are we the, the best performing lowest cost provider of infrastructure that could be in the market? Because given that we run the largest online retailer, are we really the more efficient or the most efficient? It's, it's, it turns out the answer is yes. 
And if we are the most efficient, can we be the lowest cost provider of, of, of internet infrastructure? And the answer is yes. And that's how Amazon Web Services was born. So the ability to like not settle for what is in front of you and ask questions, and most importantly, the ability to make a bet that doesn't pay out in one, two, or three years, but pays out in 10 years. Amazon Web Services took 10 years wow. before it hit that inflection point. And it was not obvious to anybody, including, including um, Microsoft. Just, take, just, to, just to give you a sense of context. By the time Microsoft decided to acknowledge that the cloud existed, Amazon had 100,000 use, 100, users on, the, on their hmm. infrastructure service. It's like they were, they were so late to the game that it wasn't even a competition anymore. Mm-hmm. So what I took away from that experience is like, what are the long-term bets? the ones that nobody sees. So far, we've been ahead of the market by about two years in everything that we do. Mm-hmm. So whenever we deploy something, whoever competes with us will take two years to de- get it to market and get it to the same standard that we are. So you're not waiting for anybody to test the waters. You're the first one. That's to exactly right. And I think, that, I think that we're living in a different area in which there used to be this whole like first to market and then yeah. first to cash. And then who, like you don't need to be first to market to reap all the rewards. I think that has changed. Mm-hmm. And I think it has to do with the, there is um um. There's there's a book by one of the one of the sort of future futurists um, that invented this term. His last name is Kurzweil, that invested invented 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 the term um, the law of accelerated learnings. Mm-hmm. That we're living in a world in which the learnings get accelerated by how early you learn it. Because mm-hmm. if you learn it early and you apply it and you make the mistakes early and continue to learn, your learnings will get faster, mo- way way more accelerated than whoever is coming right behind you. Yeah. So there is that sense of speed. In the sense of advantage, if you invest in something earlier, and again, one of the, the prime examples of that is cloud. Yeah, so I guess the the idea of being the second one instead of the first, which everybody everybody usually points back to how Microsoft was the first one to introduce a tablet, and then they couldn't sell it as good as when Am- when Apple did it, is no longer true. I think that's right. And, but well, it also has to do: do you have a learning organization, and do you have an organization that's willing to make place bets and accept? And, and, and accept failures. Kind of like a uh, high-risk bias. Like a, like a high-risk bias or like a, a, an action bias. And um, again, when, when you interview, when, uh, there's a, an interview with, with Bezos where he said, you know, they were talking about the, the Kindle phone or mm-hmm. the, the Amazon phone. Yeah. And, and, he, and that was a fantastic failure. And, and he said, well, you haven't, you, this, this is the, a very small failure compared to the failures that are about to come. When you, have a, when you have a culture that embraces that, the fact that this is a big market and I'm going to give it a good go. And at some point, we'll write it off if it doesn't work. But in the meantime, we're going to be all committed. It's very important. That's a cultural attribute. Mm-hmm. And at the time, uh, it didn't exist in Microsoft hmm. where, where you would really give it your all and, and sort of go for it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, I want to go back to when you were uh, working on the recruiting software yeah. startup. Um, you were at the brink of bankruptcy. You had two months in cash. And then the, the, the story is that then the co-founders created a, a framework to automate your sales. Correct. Which was not a product. It was just to, to get you have more meetings. And yep. then in talking to the people that you were targeting for the recruiting software, yes. there became an interest in what you were using to get th- those meetings. Correct. How did those leads were triggered about the fact that you were getting more meetings and asking you about what you were using. How, how does that happen in, in a conversation where you're trying to tell, sell them something, a recruiting software? So this, the, a lot of the, many of the meetings that we got were cold. Uh-huh. Actually, not many of the meetings. All the meetings that we got were okay. from cold outbound. And when you have a cold outbound and you get a meeting, you need to spend some time sort of relating. Yeah. You need to spend some time developing that that relationship, and it's a lot of back and forth, right? There's a lot of how do you run your 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 department, your process, your group. Were these target C level or were they HR? They were they were so we were targeting anybody who would take our meeting, okay. and that is anywhere from HR recruiters, um, engineering managers, uh-huh. um, uh, even sales managers. Anybody who would take a meeting. Got it. We would we would get a meeting, mm-hmm. but it was majority of it in, in either HR or, or, or engineering recruiting managers, mm-hmm. and the engineering recruiting managers were really surprised on how persistent we were, mm-hmm. and the fact that we didn't give up, and the fact that it didn't it didn't feel automated. So they were like, okay, so if this is not automated, you're spending a lot of time trying to get me. What do you think made it not feel automated? 
what was in those messages? So first of all, if the fact that it wasn't. So the, the original outreach. Uh-huh. So outreach was not exactly what you see right now. So the original outreach was two pieces. Uh -huh. The original outreach was a software that would allow writers mm -hmm. to personalize the email. Mm -hmm. And then the follow-up and automation. Mm -hmm. So the first piece was a workflow that, that would allow any writer. So we contacted freelance writers mm -hmm. and we would pay them between 50 cents to a buck per email. Mm -hmm. And what we would do is that we would surface the person that we were trying to get a hold of in a screen. So imagine a workflow where you get a screen of this is their LinkedIn profile of the uh -huh. person I'm trying to get a hold of. And this is all the other information that I found of this person on the web. And then I will create a blank screen with the email template that is to fill. And then the first sentence was for the writer to fill in with a personalized fact that will get somebody's attention. Like a mutual connection, school. No, well, more than that. It had to be something that will get somebody's attention. So we have to be mm -hmm. something like, oh, I noticed that you went to UCLA. Do you notice that in this particular plaza, there is this statue and under this statue, there is a hat? I kid you not. Like they will be, they like they they will have to look for a, a, an interesting fact that will get somebody's attention. Their job, or the way that they retain their job in the outreach platform, was to get a reply, and the reply is gotten if you have something interesting to say. Interesting. So, and the trick was that we hired a lot of these writers. It's like, a, like it was like an icebreaker. And exactly. Somehow, some kind of an icebreaker that will get somebody's attention. Mm -hmm. So, and writers are really good at this. And one, one little known fact is that a lot of these writers are developing comedians. So we found a lot of the writers who would write for a living as a freelance writer are also have a gig that they're, that they're supporting. Like none of these writers were writing full-time, clearly. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they would, they would be fully employed. So some of these writers were part-time, were mothers, were this, were that. But, but a good chunk of the writers that we got, especially the high-performing ones, were comedians. Any any idea of how long would they spend uh, personalizing these first? Oh, only, only a so they would do roughly ten emails per hour. Ten emails per hour. So, and then the, it, they would only really personalize the first sentence, right? Just to 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 give the. So let me take a, so let me take it back. They will do about fifteen to twenty emails per hour. Mm -hmm. They will get paid a buck per email. Mm -hmm. So, and they will do it about a couple hours a day each. So we had to create so created this entire platform that would allow us to get onboard them. writers, give them a test. And then see if we like their work, and then they will get sort of time slots in which they commit to go do the work, and then they will come in, sit in front of the computer, and then we will serve them all the personal facts on this person in an empty template for them to fill in. And all they have to do is write, write the first sentence. So they had to do one sentence per email, and it was the first sentence, and that sentence was personalized. And then they will get usually the good ones will circle through twenty, the and the average ones will circle through fifteen. So any of these writers could make fifteen to twenty bucks an hour just by sitting on their screen. Because we will oh, pay about so, so, so you you'll, you'll you'll mention something that they can relate to and then transition into I I'm reaching out about exactly. recruiting software exactly blah, blah, blah. And, and they will know coming in what what the transition lines were so they know exactly mm -hmm. sorry it's fine that they will know exactly how to personalize uh -huh. and with that we got something like you know forty to forty five percent reply rate <laughs> and the majority of them were positive. Wow. And that would trigger the meeting. And because we knew our own economics, right? If we get a meeting, then we get a conversion of that meeting and that, that triggers a, a hire that for us was a, re a retention bonus on the hire or, you know, a retention price on the hire. Um, you know, we can do this all day long at a buck the, on a bucket per email. Would you say that the subject lines of this email were uh, to break the ice too or were they just direct here is recruiting software to increase blah, blah, blah? Or? We 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 use the te the A/B testing facility of outreach to actually test the subject lines, uh -huh. and then we use this this writer workforce management tool mm -hmm. to to try to to work on the on the ice openers on the uh, sort of the, the first lines which are the openers of the of the mm -hmm. email. So the the subject line gets you to open, and it's a fairly you can fairly quickly get to a good set of open of, of subject lines because the open rate will just tell you yeah. you know whether you head in the right direction so we wanted to leave that as automated as possible because mm -hmm. that's a scientific exercise got it whereas the opening line is a lot harder to nail yes and you want to be very personalized with that so that's where the writers came in mm. and then that will pass the email to to the the follow-up engine and the follow-up engine will literally say something like you know i was wondering if you had uh would reply to the meet would reply all and say Hey Alonso, I know you were busy. I wondering if you had a chance to do this. Yeah, or, that, that was easy to automate. Yeah. Exactly, or 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 we would you know look at the at the original email and say, hey, 
was I off by saying that you were a blah, 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 or like things of that nature that could be com easily automated by a computer. I almost feels the gap for the lack of discipline when you're managing a lot exactly. of Exactly, and many times <laughs> we will get like, oh, I'm sorry, dude, that I didn't get enough time to, to reply. But, and so the, the whole idea of creating, of like breaking down, what, what, so what you're doing is you're breaking down the communication patterns into what could be taken by a computer and what is quintessentially human, mm -hmm. right? And the ability to identify somebody and break the ice and create a point of communication, that is a very in inherently a human activity. The follow-up and remembering what to do, what to do, that's something that could be taken by a computer easily. Now, your ability to scale the amount of activity per sales rep also increases the demand of the number of leads that you need to have, otherwise there is no, there is no gas for the car. Correct. Um, at that time, when you started scaling things up, uh, did you did you guys build your own lists as far as the people you're gonna reach out, or you outsource that also? That's another great question. So we had a combination of both, and one of the things that I did early on. So once we did, once we decided that outreach was gonna be our main offering, we pivoted, and and at this point because we're almost out of money, we couldn't maintain the software writing, the, the sort of in, in, the personalization writing service. And the original offer for outreach was actually not the follow-up engine and the workflow engine, was the personalization engine. So we were trying to sell people the fact that, you know, you had these writers that you can even hire or whatever and maintain in your platform that would personalize a lot of your communication. People were not ready for that. So we quickly scrapped that and we're like, all right, so if you don't want to buy that, we'll send you the workflow engine. Mm -hmm. And the workflow engine had both the personalization and the follow-up, right? So for us, because we were completely broke, what we did is, is as we are selling this um, software to, to people who were in sales operations, especially startups, especially tech startups, is that because the companies are so small, you develop this relationship. I, they become my friends. Mm -hmm. I, sold, I sold the software door to door for the first 60 customers or so. So I would, I would book a meeting in the SOMA in San Francisco. And when the meeting time came, I would get an email saying, hey, what's a, what's a video conferencing number? What's a link so I can jump on? Mm -hmm. And I'll be like, I'm downstairs. Can you let me up? <laughs> and I will come up and open up my laptop and do the meeting. And when you're doing a person-to-person, -person, first of all, nobody says no to, uh, to an in-person meeting, right? So you get a lot, of, a lot of trials out of that. You get a lot of people who are like, all right, let me, let me try it. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is now you know a person because you will see, oh, do you know so-and-so or we're connected because of so-and-so and all of a mm -hmm. sudden now you're all connected and because San Francisco is so small and the sales community in San Francisco in tech is also relatively small, you get invited to a lot of parties and hangouts, et cetera. You develop these big relationships. So now I have all these relationships and I'm trying to scale the business. So what I would do is I would call those people and be like, hey, I know you're subscribed to any data service and those data services have daily caps. So they're all you can eat but, to, but they all have a daily cap. And that cap expires around 9 p.m. Pacific time. So at 8.45, I will call those people and be like, did you hit your cap? And if you didn't hit your cap, do you mind selling me some leads? Or just exchanging some leads for favors or exchanging some leads for outreach or like do something for the leads, right? Because what do I have? I, have I, I don't have money, but I have software, right? So I would ask them to you know, give me some leads or sell me some leads or oh, wow. let me borrow some leads. So they will be like, yeah, sure, I have 100 left in the cap or like 2,000 left in the cap or whatever. And I was, so I would send in queries of what I was looking for. They will enter in the tool, get the leads, put them in a spreadsheet. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I would do this every night. So around, <laughs> around 9.30 p.m., I would have anywhere between 200 to 1,000 prospects. So you never actually at the time bought a list. You yeah, I would, borrow. I would, I would borrow, beg, and steal. <laughs> and, then, and then assemble that list, put them in outreach, do all sorts of testing, and let it rip. Because I had four AEs that were all commission-based. Mm -hmm. So if I didn't generate 16 to 20 meetings a day for them, they wouldn't eat. Yeah. So I had to generate meetings. And I got so efficient at this that some of the AEs would have to wake up at six and they would not go to bed until 10 p.m. because they would be meeting back to back the entire day. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Now, I, I wanna get back to the, the, get more tactical about a key conversation that you have with your leads that would get them to ask about how are you getting these many meetings uh, and talk about your platform that you were running behind the scenes? What what would that conversation look like or sound like? What I'm sorry, say that again. When you were talking to a lead for the recruiting software, oh, yeah, what yeah. would that conversation go? You said that you try to relate to them and talk about, a little bit about you, but how would you, I, I think that part is kind of genius, whatever you were doing. Yeah. 
to, or maybe unconsciously, but you somehow were able to introduce that part of your. Well, I, I was, I would come up and say, so why do you take the meeting? And they uh -huh. would be like, oh, you were so persistent. Uh huh. And and I and, and I usually pay attention to people who are persistent, and you're or or something along those lines. Uh huh. Uh, or they would say, "I have a, I have I have a job break. I would like you to fill." Like any any and it's somewhere in between, right? Mm -hmm. So, so I'm like, "Great." Um, and then they would ask, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh -huh. And then we're like, "Well, you you're group talent, and we have um, you know we're a marketplace because we don't say yeah. we're a marketplace for for technical talent, and 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 they will want to know what my secret sauce was." Mm -hmm. because everybody like there's no end to technical recruiters so what is your secret so what makes you special and it's mm -hmm. like well glad you asked because we could be build this engine so the engine that we were building for finding customers we're also building for finding recruits mm -hmm. so we build this engine that would allow me to go out and find great technical talent and because it's personalized and, and has all these follow-ups um, I'm able to get into many conversations so if only I have like, if I can pitch your job I can put you in front of hundreds of candidates really how does that you do that well, it turns out that the en the engine does the personalization and it does the follow up, and, and you know we get forty percent reply rates. Forty percent reply rate, that's impossible. It's like, is this are these even cold? Like, do you know these people? No, it's completely cold emails. Like, we source the list just like you source. You know, we're we're sourcing from um, there's like three or four. Intello was one of the sourcing um, areas that we had, but there was Intello. There was the other. Um, uh, there were two, or three or four. Um, Guild was another, and there was like three or four sourcers. Sourcing areas where we can go and get and get and get uh, and get names. Um, we were sourcing from there and using outreach to reach out to these people and get them. And they were like, "Can I just buy that instead? I would love to run my 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 recruiting software using your platform. I would love to run my recruiting team using your platform." So it, it happened that it was just God given that <laughs> the recruiting and sales workflow are the same. Are, yeah, I mean that's LinkedIn sales navigator, LinkedIn recruiter. I mean that's exactly right, and everybody has that. That's, so that's the biggest secret is is that is that recruiting and sales are, are exactly the same thing. You're selling and, and your one and one you're selling your company or you're selling yourself, and the other one you're selling a product. Wow, um, I have a question from one of my colleagues, Ray Makla. Yeah, uh, he when I told him I was going to meet with you, he he was very interested. At, uh, when and how did you know it was? the right time to completely pivot the company and completely to start outreach. Is it like the recruiting had no hope and that's why? Yeah, no, we had, a, we had a month. I had a founder that, that one of my co-founders, I'm not going to say who, that, uh -huh. that tends to freak out. Well, there is always the steady person, in, you know? And, and no, so we had a, we had a, so we were forecasting a great, so we were in a, in a business in which, we were almost break even, almost break even. So we, our burn was way down. We were almost break even because we were getting all these checks, and it's not growing, but it's not bust. Mm -hmm. And then December happened. In December, as I don't know if you know this, but December is a terrible month for recruiting. Nobody takes any jobs. Recruiters go on vacation. People go on vacation. Nobody's doing anything. Oh wow! And we didn't have any money in the bank, and or we had like we had two months of cash in the bank, and um. And 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 um in December and, and and I remember that I forecasted December to be a great month and December started coming in slowly. And then by the middle of December I'm like, guys, we're not gonna make it. So it was already forecasted that you guys were gonna fail and you needed to do something new. And then and then at that point we're like, all right, we're we need to do something new. Wow. And and we're like Okay, so what's what's that new? And and you know, we've been running with you know, low cash balance for a while, but December just made a stark. And I think the other thing that happened is I think one of my one of my co-founders discovered that we had a, a not large, but you know, substantial, like in the twenty, thirty k, forty k. I forget exactly the number legal bill that we hadn't paid. Okay. And one of the things you learn in business school is that you pay your bills, you pay your you pay your bills late. And I was like, I'm not gonna pay it because we don't have any cash we'll pay later like you know we'll this about this will bounce back and we'll pay that bill and then you know everything will go back to normal he's like no he was afraid that the league that the lawyers were going to come after his personal property and i'm like dude they won't you know the company's a company your personal property is personal property and he's like i don't want to risk it and he started going around inventorying everything so i'm like okay this is what we're gonna do i think we have a good shot here because we're getting all these requests for outreach software and 
I also had had a conversation with one of the one of my investors at that point, and and he was in very interested, very piqued about the idea. So I, I convinced my founders. He's like, look, this is there's something here if we can just build it, and if this is what it looks like, you know, it's kind of like you know take what we have, turn it outside, you know, inside out, let people use it. And two out of the three jumped, and the third just got out, you just went on with it. So we decided to postpone the whole, you know, inventorying the company and selling it off conversation to an export meeting, which was like 15 days after. And I pitched to the board, uh, which happened to be two investors, that this is a new direction of the company. I got a lot of bites, and one of them, one of the investors got really excited. And it's kind of like poker, because, hmm. you know, you're, you're, you know, you felt good about your hand, and you, you, you know, you play your chips, and then first card turn, and then you play your chips, and then next card turn, and then it doesn't, your hand doesn't look good anymore, but there's three cards left. So what do you do? Hmm. If you if you fold, you just lost the money you put on the table. But if you play one more chip, you get to see the next card. And maybe there's something there. And they both invested. Wow. And so far we are one of the I think we are the highest return company for both funds right now. So it's one of those pivotal moments when you know, four losers look like look they look like they're not gonna go anywhere. And and all of a sudden, boom. During that moment of uncertainty and making big decisions, mm -hmm. how do you, I guess, prep yourself or prime yourself to make sure you're making the right decision and not let, I have no regrets? Um, there's no such thing as no regrets. You will always, you will always regret why you don't try. Hmm. So... I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of first principles of like you know looking at the at, at what is sort of the underpinning of what we have right now. So if you were to do a balance sheet mm -hmm. of and and do a quick inventory of what what we have and what we don't have, we had exactly one thing that was very powerful. We had four very talented guys that had gone through hell and back. That all they needed was good one good product software problem to solve one good one and this was it so all i had to do is to convince him that this is the problem because if we fail we're a small company if we succeed we go public all right and that was <laughs> that's fantastic kind of like the first startup developed you into the group of spartans for the next that's right <laughs> And, 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 it, and it sort of, the, and it, but the magic of that is when you build a company around that, you look for like-minded people mm -hmm. who can have, who have the same ability to go to hell and back with you. And that was key because other, because you did have one founder that was, did not like the direction it was, we were heading, but you guys were still able to stick together. Yeah, it wasn't that he liked where he, he was heading. He was just freaking out, but it's, it's normal to freak out when you, exactly. when you have no money in the bank. Like I said, there was nothing wrong with what we were and who we were. It was wrong. There was something wrong with our business model, mm -hmm. and if you are just able to keep it together and have another good go at it, mm -hmm. and there is all these worries, right? Do you have enough gas in the tank? You have the appetite to go do it, and that's where I learned that there was nothing else that that group wanted to do that would be with each other. And when you have that, nothing can stop you. Hmm. That's the way you know that you have it. Now I wanted to uh, fit. Take the last minutes to a series of rapid fire questions mm -hmm. um, on how you work and learn about the behind the scenes of your day to day. Uh, yeah. I know you did one with Matt Hines at Hines Marketing, mm -hmm. uh, an interview, and I will include those in the show notes. I don't want to re repeat the same questions, so if you guys want yeah, He's a great guy and a great friend yeah, of mine. It was so he should... some great answers, some tips there, and I'll be including those in the show notes. But kind of as an update of that, uh, what's your morning routine like? I wake up at 4.30, between 4.30 and 4.35. Mm -hmm. uh, I meditate for about 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. Then I lift. Hmm. Um, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm a huge fan of uh, Olympic lifting. So I try to lift heavy. Yeah. Um, if not every morning, at least every other day, depending on whether I feel hurt or not. Any cardio once in a while? Uh, not much. Okay. I, I have a rower that sometimes I do. 
Oh, there you go. But I love the feeling of getting heavy weights over my head. It's just, I can't describe it to you. Like Addiction. It, it, it pumps <laughs> you up like nothing else. Like you're ready to move cars when you're done with it. <laughs> and, and then, and oh, then I ahead. jump into a cold bath. Cold bath. Yeah, so I have a, I have a little fountain outside my house. Uh-huh. That is, the water is at, you know, 30 degrees outside, so the water is wow. at 40 some degrees. So I go in there for about 10 minutes. How, when did you start doing that, the cold baths? Um, when I bought my house now, but I, I've been doing cold showers forever. Cold showers? Yeah. Did, did anybody influence you to do that or it was just out of... Um, I, so uh, one of my good friends, Jason Vargas, uh -huh. uh, got me into Bulletproof. Uh-huh. And, and then he started reading, telling me more about the whole keto diet and what he does, etc. So... I started just getting doing one thing after the like I picked up the bulletproof thing and then I picked up the cold showers and I picked yeah. up the the um the fasting and I just been picking up picking it up one one at a time and every time I do it I'm like oh that works that feels really mm -hmm. good and then and then there's this whole aspect so the thing about the cold shower not only like it makes you feel good and it gives you all this energy uh -huh. but you got one really hard thing done already hmm. you see what I mean so by the time you're out of that shower that was hard your brain is telling you not to do it. You see, I mean, if you let your mind win, you will not jump into that cold bath because it's cold. In the first minute or two of any cold bath, your heart goes into this high ref mode trying to figure out what the hell just happened to your body. <laughs> and it happens all the time. You, you will never get used to it. So that moment is like a fear, right? Of like, oof, and then it settles. So, so, but you have to be there for a, for a minute or two for let, let it settle and then you don't feel it anymore. Uh-huh. So but getting that the mind over 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 body feeling is 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 one of the things that drives me to do it every day is that once you're done with that, you just made your first hard decision of the day. Wow. And then the day looks downhill from there. So you know, I mean, uh I, I do the cold showers too and after a while it's it's not a I don't I don't even see it getting so much out of my comfort zone because I'm used to it. Yeah. I kinda crave it. But mm -hmm. how was that going from the cold shower to the cold bath? Because I mean that's a huge gap of just Big, submerging yourself in you, you if you go outside, put yourself in cold water outside right now. Mm -hmm. That's cold. Mm -hmm. The cold the shower has almost like a a ceiling on how cold it gets. Yeah. Outside it will be as cold as it is in the weather. So it doesn't work in the summer so well, and the winter is magic. Because, you know, when it's 20 degrees outside and you do it, yeah, it's a different kind of jump. <laughs> um, one word that best describes how you work. Um, frankly, it's, it's hard for a, for a CEO to describe exactly how I work. But I, my, my sort of ethos is I, I, I work on the hard shit that is urgent that needs me. All right. That nobody else is doing. Okay. So I, I, I love to inspect... And the second thing is that I try to, there is a, a, a method to the madness on, on growing, a, uh, building a fast growing company. Mm -hmm. And it's the fact that because you're bringing in all these people and when you bring all these people, you also have to insert middle management in it. Mm -hmm. And if you do it too quickly, it disconnects you, meaning that you get disconnected from the people who are actually doing the work. Mm -hmm. So I make a point of spending time with the teams that are doing the hard work people sitting in support, people mm -hmm. sitting people sitting in uh, the SDRs are making cold calls. Mm -hmm. um, the, the people doing the internal support or the people doing the CSM managers. Mm -hmm. I, I try to spend some time or quality time with them. Um, I tend, I, sometimes I take, I take support tickets. Mm -hmm. So every other month I will set in the support queue and actually take a ticket from a customer and run it just to figure out, you know, all the issues from our customer's eyes. Mm -hmm. So, It's a, it's a mixed bag of that kind of thing of like, you know, working on, on what's urgent and not being minded and what I, my, what I think is being urgent or what the numbers telling me is urgent and developing empathy for the customer and, uh, and our employees. Best book you've read in 2017? Oh, um, that's, a, that's a tricky one. So I reread High Output Management. High Output Management. By Andy Grove. Hmm. And I think is The Management Bible. I almost want to buy that book and the rights of that book and burn it because it is it will make you a super manager. Wow! And is it will be one of our competitive advantages here on how hmm. as we develop our management layers. Uh, what's your sleep routine like? Um, I sleep very little, so I go to sleep at ten or eleven. Oh or, wow! And then I wake up at four or four thirty. Mm -hmm. If you could have one billboard anywhere that said anything, what would it say and where would it be? Uh, that's a 
That's a good question. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Maybe something that. I don't know, something like trust and verify, which is what I do a lot. Trust and verify. Um, what's something that most people don't know about you? Um, what would that be? Uh, I don't know. A lot of people don't know, that, you know, a lot about me. Like it, people, it's not obvious. I love to cook, for instance. I just haven't done it. Mm -hmm. a lot lately but i used to i i i cooked entire um um the art of french cooking book mm -hmm. right but before the movie came out oh um i i did the, the, the i i cooked the entire book because i got addicted to to french cooking and how <laughs> intricate it was and all the ingredients and how everything mm -hmm. had to every dish took an entire afternoon just to get it right uh, if you want to make a cassoulet it was like a multi-day affair so i i got <laughs> I, I got really sucked in uh, and I really enjoy cooking. Nice. Now, before we move to the last question to wrap up uh, this interview, um, where can people find you online, learn more about you, and outreach? Um, there's a good bio of me and my uh, and my outreach um, sort of company uh -huh. website. Um, I tend to write a lot too, uh -huh. and and um, a lot of that gets picked up. So, you know, there's a few LinkedIn articles about me, or if you, if you Google my name in outreach.io, there will be a bunch of, mm -hmm. a bunch of things out there already. I, I, because I come from a computer engineering background, fairly deep in, in AI and machine learning. Cause I, that uh -huh. was my, that's what I worked on when I was, um, getting my, my master thesis. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm tending to write a lot about that and read a lot about that too. Lately. Okay. Yeah. I'll include some notes of some of the articles that I've read. Sure. That they got picked up by the media too. I thought some, they were really great. Um, okay, the last question, you can take your time. Uh, it's called The Three Truths by one of my favorite podcasts. Mm -hmm. um, uh, if today was your last day on earth and everything you've created was all to disappear, outreach, recruiting software, your career experience in Amazon and Microsoft, they're gone. Yeah. But you could leave your loved ones and the world behind with three truths about life what mm. would those be um be present be useful to somebody else and build something be present be useful and build something yep. thank you so much manny yeah no a pleasure And that was my interview with Manny Medina. A couple of quick announcements before you leave. For reference, you can access these episode's notes alongside other resources at bit.ly slash BTS EP020. Again, that's bit.ly slash BTS EP020. Finally, if you enjoy listening to this interview, the best way to support this podcast is by leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you for tuning in and remember to live a life that moves you.